What's one vacation that you haven't yet taken that you still want to take? What's one vacation that you haven't yet taken that you still want to take? Good morning. My name is Matt Friend. I'm the senior pastor here at Bible Center. It's great to have you here. Uh, Bible Center Church, I love you. I love what God is doing in you and through you and because of you. Uh, I'm excited to be here this morning with, with you to worship the Lord. But we also want to welcome those of you who are new. Every Sunday, uh, different folks come and visit. It's a good opportunity for us to meet different folks looking for a church. So if that's you, uh, welcome to Bible Center. We're glad you're here. I look forward to meeting you personally after the service. But I ask the question, what vacation have you not yet taken that you still want to take? According to Carl Pilmer at Cornell University, the biggest life regret people experience is not taking that trip that they wanted to take. In his study, he interviewed over a thousand men and women of retirement age and asked them the question about regret. And overwhelmingly, the consensus was they wished they had taken that trip, that vacation, gone on that journey. He interviewed one 81-year-old man named Jack, and Jack told the story about how he and Lynn, his wife, had wanted to visit the Rockies for years. And Jack wrote this, We always thought we'd do a lot of traveling when we retired, you know. But then Lynn passed away, and it was too late. I went on a couple of trips, and I guess they were okay, but it's less fun going alone. I took a bus to the Canadian Rockies, and I actually turned once to talk to her. I was sitting in a seat by myself, and it was beautiful, and I just wanted to tell Lynn, look at the light, look at the beautiful colors, look at the sky, but of course she wasn't there. And I just wanted to share things with her when I travel, but we waited too long. That's a reality that some of you may be living this morning. I talked to my dad last week about the regrets of life, and the truth is I think all of us have regrets. There's decisions we've made for our children. There's decisions we've made in our careers. There's choices or the acceptance of sin into our lives that if only we could go back and change, we say, ah, oh, I would change that decision. And the regrets of life invite us back to Jesus. For the truth is, not one of us, not one of us will be able to say when we live life that we've done everything perfectly, or even that we've done everything that we wanted to do, which is why, of course, we need Jesus. But there are trips that I look forward to taking with my wife. Sarah and I, uh, for our honeymoon 17 years ago, went to a little cabin in Gatlinburg, I'd love to take her back to that cabin for a vacation. We drove by there a couple years ago, and it's still there, still beautiful. I'd love to take her back. Ten, for our 10th anniversary, seven years ago, we went to Cancun, Mexico. Our Spanish was almost as terrible as our dancing, uh, but I'd still like to take her back. And it was a great time. I can still remember seven years ago just sitting there on the patio and watching people and talking and playing games at the table. A lot of trips I would like to take, even with my kids. A couple nights ago, we realized that Katie only has four summers left in our home before she goes off to college. Like four summers. I'd like to think that's going to take an eternity, that it's going to go slowly, but many of you tell me it's going to go quickly. And so we think, where would we like to take the girls? We'd love to go on a mission trip together as a family. I'd like to take them to Hawaii. I think the best mission trip should always be in Hawaii. Uh, <laughs> But this morning, I want to talk to you about a more important journey. I want to talk to you about a spiritual journey, a spiritual walk that God invites all of us to go on. This spiritual walk is the most important thing about your life. It's more important than anything on your calendar or on your schedule or on your agenda. And it's so important that I don't want you to end your life with regret, especially not having taken this spiritual journey. Today I'm going to talk about how to take the spiritual journey, and then we're going to finish by saying why it's so important. Let me invite you to go on the journey with me. We're going to start in Colossians chapter 2. And if you would take your Bibles, please stand with me out of respect for God's Word as I read Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. Therefore... As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. 
See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. And in Him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In your outline or in your bulletin is an outline along with the app. If it helps you to follow along or to write down notes, feel free to do that uh, today. We want to give you something to study throughout the week. The first question we ask today is simply this. What is God's invitation to me? What is God's invitation to me? And the answer is in verse 6. Walk in a relationship with Jesus. Walk in a relationship with Jesus. He says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Verse 6 summarizes everything we've talked about in Colossians so far. It really is the hinge on which the book of Colossians rests. There's usually two parts to Paul's epistles. The first part usually deals with deep doctrine or truth that, of course, we can make practical. But the last half of Paul's books usually tell us how to make it practical. And in Colossians chapter 2, he starts that transition early, and he says, Because you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, this Jesus, the one whom I have already taught you about, This is how you walk in him. In this short verse, Paul describes belief differently than we often describe belief. Belief to the Apostle Paul isn't a checklist, but it's a walk. It isn't a decision, it's a journey. It isn't just a greet, but it's a fellowship. And fellowship with Jesus is more than a church or more than just owning a Bible, but it's a relationship with a friend, just like you have relationships with other people in your life. To the Apostle Paul, being a Christian meant you're one who has a relationship with Christ. In the Bible, the word walk is used often to describe our relationship with God. We see it all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. God literally took him for a walk. We see it back in the book of Genesis with Enoch. Enoch walked with God. Imagine that. In the Old Testament, when two kings were going to make a treaty, they would go for a walk. They would either share a meal or go for a walk or both. But walk in the Bible is a symbol of relationship. Think of the people in your life with whom you enjoy taking walks. So, If a relationship with God is compared to taking a walk, how can we walk with God? How do we go on this journey, this fellowship, this relationship with Jesus? Well, we find the first answer here in verse 7. He says, Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. How do we have a relationship with God? Before we get too specific, we're going to look here in verse 7 at these three words. For you who love English, there are three participles. He says, you're rooted, you're built up in him, and you're established in the faith. These are three different words from three different spheres of the world. The word rooted is a gardening term. The word built up is a construction term. And the word established is a business term. The Apostle Paul says, when you received the gospel, you became rooted in Christ. It was a one-time action where God rooted himself in you. You were planted in the gospel. That's the gardening term. 
But the second term, this idea of construction, is progressive. He says you're built up or you're being built up in him. It's continual. Some of us, our houses are continual projects. You get one project done and 10 more add themselves to the list. That's the way I feel about a treehouse I'm currently building. Back on Labor Day, I told my little girl who's 11, before she gets too big, Daddy wants to finally build you a treehouse. I'm so excited. I'm going to build her one. And I told her, I said, I should be able to build the whole thing today um, in one day. <laughs> should tells you a lot about my personality. I should, should be able to build the whole thing today. I, I had gotten off of Google a nice schematic, a nice diagram. I was ready to go. But what I didn't take into consideration, that building this box in your garage may take a day. But building this box about 12 to 15 feet in the air on one foot hanging from a ladder trying to get the screws right, that's a different story. I didn't take that into consideration. By the end of Labor Day, that Monday, having worked all day for my daughter, I had a total of three boards screwed to the tree. Three boards, those lag bolts that you see. I see it on Treehouse Masters all the time. It looks like so easy when they screw those big 10 to 12 inch bolts in, but I was doing it by hand. And so I'm jumping and hanging on the wrench and pulling it down. Finally got three boards into the tree. Now I've got like 10 boards in the tree a month later. It's progressive. That treehouse is a lot like our life. We're just continual projects. God's working on you. God's working on me. And by the way, if you see yourself as a continual project, you're always welcome at Bible Center. You're always welcome. We don't want people here uh, who think that they've got it all figured out. Well, actually, we do want them here, so I can tell them they don't have it all figured out. We're all continual projects. We're growing in Christ, and he is conforming us into the image of Jesus. The third word he uses here in verse 7 is the idea of, it's a business term. It's the idea of a contract or a covenant. He says, you've been established. This was a Greek word that was used after the handshake or after the signature, the ink had dried. They would say, the deal has been established. But it carried effects continuously. And so God says that you as a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, this You've been established, you're settled in Christ, and the effects will carry with you into eternity. But what could do this for them? What could root them so well? The answer is, starts in verse 7. He says, you've been rooted, built up, and established. The next three words are important. In the faith. In the faith. Anytime in Scripture you see the word the before faith, Usually, it's not referring to having faith, but it's referring to you believing in the faith. This body of Christian truth found in the Bible is called the faith, which is why in Jude 3, the prophet writes, earnestly contend for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. So the, the way that we get rooted and established as Christians is through the Bible, but if we want to know specifically, like what truth, okay, does that mean I've got to know everything about the Bible? Well, we're all still learning, we're all still growing, but there's one particular truth in the Bible that Colossians 1 puts above all others, and it's found back in chapter 1, verse 23. In Colossians 1, 23, Paul is still referring to this point when he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, there's our words, the faith, if you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, sounds a lot like rooted, established. He says, not shifting from the hope of the what? Of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The truth of the gospel is what the Apostle Paul knows will establish your life. And by this, we don't just mean that you prayed a prayer and you checked the box and became a Christian. But the implications of the gospel are important for us for the rest of our lives. So it applies to every area of life. Let me show you how. So if we think of the gospel in those four movements, creation, fall, salvation, restoration, God created all things. God created the world. That affects the way I see life now. That keeps me from making the mistake that the Colossians were making, where they thought that only the spiritual world was good, but the physical world was bad. 
But when we think about the gospel, back in chapter 1, verse 16, he said Jesus created all things. So when we see the world around us, we can appreciate good food. We can appreciate fun. We can appreciate beauty and art and life. Because it's not like, well, only I'm only allowed to get excited about the church stuff. No, God created all things, so it affects the way we see day-to-day life. The second movement of the gospel is that man and woman chose to sin. It's called the fall. So the creation, fall. When we think about the fall, it affects the way we see all the world. Adam and Eve chose to sin, and if they hadn't, you and I would have. But because they fell, the whole world suffers the consequences. He says that in Romans 8, that that's where hurricanes come from and earthquakes come from. The whole world is under this judgment of God to remind them, not any one particular country that gets hit with a hurricane, but the world, we're all suffering so that God can remind us one day there's there's hope coming and that we can't do this on our own. We chose to sin. We bore the consequences in Adam and Eve. So creation, fall. But then there's salvation. The third movement of the gospel is salvation. And that really is what most of the Bible is all about. Genesis 1 and 2 and the first part of Genesis 3 are about creation and fall. From Genesis 3.15 through the rest of the Bible, it's all about salvation, with the exception of maybe the last two chapters. It's all about this. It's about Jesus and the God building a people that would one day bring Jesus into the world, the Messiah who would save us from our sins. You see, the, sa- the saving of our sins isn't just that all of our sins are gone, but when Jesus died on the cross, we heard two weeks ago that the whole world then has hope of being restored. The reason there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth is because Colossians 1, 20 through 22 says, Jesus reconciled all things at the cross. And then the last movement of the gospel is restoration. And that is there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. God will wipe all tears from our eyes. New bodies, a new earth. I don't know if there's going to be a new West Virginia. I hope it looks a lot like the old West Virginia. But there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And that transforms the way we see life. My daughter asked me this week, there's a girl connected to her school who uh, is, has very serious diagnosis of cancer, a 13-year-old girl. And on the way to school, she's asking me, Daddy, what hope? She didn't use those words, but like, what am I supposed to think of this? And if she asked me, what am I supposed to say? And of course, I told her, you don't, uh, you don't just go sp- spouting off Bible facts. Just love this girl and be with this girl and be her friend. But we did talk about that. The only hope we have in life, the only hope we have in life is resurrection. That is our hope. At the end of the day, every one of us are on a crash course to death. We're decaying. We're falling apart. You thought you came for good news. Here's the good news. The good news is resurrection is coming. If you're by grace able to live 80, 90, 100 years, even then your hope isn't your good life behind you. Your hope is the resurrection of Christ. And Paul says, if we as Christians can hang on to that, if we can sink our claws into that, we'll be able to be rooted and grounded and mature and established in life, not being swayed by every wind of doctrine. How can I walk with Jesus? He's going to give us some practical tips here. These go quickly. Number one, we listen to him. We listen to Jesus. I've just chosen to use that word as a summary of everything he's already said just to stick with the relationship metaphor. He says in verse 7, rooted, built up, established, just as you were taught. So at some point, the Colossians heard Paul's letter. They listened to his words. They had heard much of the Old Testament. They had heard God's voice. And Paul, in context, says, stop listening to the false teachers and start listening to the gospel. Start listening to the truth. Here at Bible Center, at the end of the day, what we are about is Bible teaching and preaching. Bible Center for 74 years has been about being Bible-centered in everything that we do. So when somebody asks you, well, where's the teaching at Bible Center? Our goal is to make it everywhere and to make it more so. 
that we can focus on teaching and communicating God's word in everything that we do. We say our strategy here is to worship, belong, and serve. You've seen the three circles out in the gathering space over top of the three big doors. Worship, belong, and serve. You say, where is teach in those three? Actually, we want teach to be ever more present in all three. And so in our worship services, how can we teach and communicate gospel truth to the person who's not yet a believer and to the person who's been a believer for 50 years? Belong. We encourage you to belong in a community group or an adult Bible fellowship. We call them ABFs here. Well, as you dive into those, some of your ABFs and community groups like to meet in circles. You like to talk in circles. And that's how some of you learn. Some of you like to learn in rows. One way is not better than the other. The truth is we just want the Bible to be teaching and informing us because we need to grow deeper. God's inviting us into a deeper place of maturity as a church, and it only comes through teaching and hearing God's word. My vision one day is even our third circle, our serve circle, will be just, just saturated with teaching. We're encouraging our leaders, before you start your, your shift, whether it be coffee or whether it be with children, have a word of prayer, read a scripture, take every opportunity to teach the scriptures because that's how we become rooted in God. Maybe you struggle with reading your Bible at home. Uh, this past week or two weeks ago, I had lunch with a good friend who reads, essentially, I won't tell you what he does because you'll figure out who he is, but he reads a lot for a living. And he said, you know, whenever I'm, I'm reading the Bible, it's just hard for me to shift gears. I feel like I'm just doing it like my job. And so I encouraged him, have you ever tried an audio Bible in your car? You ever tried that? Most of your phones, you can get the audio Bible. You can listen to it in just about any translation. I read all week. I'm in the Bible in different books. And so I find that for my devotion, sometimes it's the most fulfilling when I listen to God's word out on a run or out on a walk or in my car or in my office, and maybe that'll help you as well. Another way that you can learn God's Word is through Right Now Media. We haven't talked about this much lately, uh, but this is free, a free service. The church pays a good amount for you to have this. A number of you are already connected to it. You can sign up online uh, or on the app, and through Right Now Media, on your phone, your computer, your tablet, there's actually 14,000 now. It's increased. 14,000 different Bible study videos on just about every topic you can think of. Doctrinal questions, life questions, marriage issues, children issues. One of my friends asked me recently, he says, can you all see, can you see what we search for and what videos we watch? I said, no, man, we can't see that. They don't give us that kind of big brother access. So whatever you, just, just eat it up. Play it in your car. Play it at home. Listen to God's word. Let's be Bible-centered by listening to God's word. The second way we become rooted is by being thankful for him. In verse 7, he finishes this with saying, abounding in thanksgiving. The word abounding means overflowing. It's the same Greek word used for when a river would overflow. Thanksgiving was one of Paul's favorite subjects. 26 times the Apostle Paul uses the word thanksgiving. He says, be thankful. Interestingly, thankfulness, I didn't learn it till this week. Thankfulness is an art of spiritual warfare. Maybe you knew that, but I didn't. In Ephesians chapter 5 and Ephesians chapter 6, when the Apostle Paul wants to talk about spiritual warfare, he mentions thankfulness three times, chapter 5 leading into chapter 6. I love this quote. Those who lack a deep sense of thankfulness to God are especially vulnerable to doubt and spiritual delusion. Another quote that may help you is this. Thankful hearts protect us from Satan's darts. Thankful hearts protect us from Satan's darts. In Ephesians 5, he's talking about immorality, and he says if you're tempted with immorality or sensuality in any form, be thankful for what God has already given you in your life. Just be thankful. And call it out loud. Say it, say it out loud. God, I am so thankful for this blessing and that blessing, and it's a form of spiritual warfare. In Ephesians 5, he also uses it for uh, alcoholism or drunkenness. 
If you wrestle with, with a bottle t- calling your name more than it should, and you say, I just don't know how to get victory or, or o- strength over that, one way to start is just by being thankful for all that God has given you. I'm not saying that's the end-all, catch-all, but it is a form of spiritual warfare that you can use in your life. Be thankful for your kids. If you've got children, you say, man, my children, you have no idea. My children are not perfect. Well, they're probably a lot like their parents, right? They're like us. Be thankful for your job. Be thankful for your house. Be thankful for your car. Be thankful for what God has given you because the truth is all of us have far more than what we deserve. Yesterday, Dan Monday turned 80. I came to his 80th party, and and I was talking to Dan a few days even before that, and I said, Dan, you doing okay? How's your health? Uh, I'm just trying to learn to ask the the right questions when somebody's not in my generation. I'm still learning. And, uh, And so... He said, Matt, I have absolutely nothing to complain about. He said, God has been so good to me. I'm on my way to heaven. God has given me more gifts in my life than I could ever, ever, ever deserve. He goes, man, I'm a blessed man. May God give us that heart of gratitude and thankfulness in spiritual warfare. The third way we're grounded and rooted is in verse 8. And that is to guard the relationship from intruders. Guard the relationship from intruders. In verse 8, he writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He says, guard the relationship. Now, I've tried to frame this sermon in such a way that it's all about relationship. So all three of these things apply to our human relationships, too. For instance, if you want a relationship with someone, it's important to listen to them from time to time. How many of you have a friend? Don't raise your hand. You've got a friend that always talks, and you never have the opportunity to say a word. And like you like him, you love him, but every time you're around him, it's just like somebody pulled the cord on a lawnmower, and it's just going to go, and you're never going to get a chance to talk. You know, we all have that friend, right? Well, he says, listen. So that's why we say listen. It's about relationship. Be thankful. We're thankful for the people in our lives. That builds trust. That builds relationships. People hear us, and we hear them when trust and gratitude are established. But this third one, guard your relationship from intruders. That's just my summary of verse 8. Also applies to human relationships. On Friday evening, Sarah and I went on a date to the... the uh, Pepperoni Grill. How many of you have eaten at the Pepperoni Grill in Canal City? You've eaten there? It's pretty good. Pretty good. Small. Don't all go at once. James, the owner and manager, he'd be overrun, but it's really cool. Just a small hole in the wall there in Canal City, but great pizza. They got gluten-free pizza. They got Ellen's ice cream. It's pretty good. But we got all, you know, Friday night, I used the good cologne, right? I I left the old spice in the cabinet. I, I put used the good cologne, the expensive stuff, and she got all looking hot, and we went out for a date. Why do we do that? We do that to guard our relationship from intruders. We know that the world is a hard place to live in the world. So as we grow in our relationship, it's like putting a stake in the ground and saying, hey, we are about each other. And that's the, the heart behind this. This isn't just a military idea. This is a relationship. We're still talking about walking with God. Guard the relationship from intruders. If you're taking notes in verse 8, the word captive, take you captive, means don't let anyone haul you off or make you a slave. Don't let anybody haul you off or make you a slave. It was a nautical term. Because often ships were taken over by pirates and their cargo and their crew were hauled off into slavery. It's a lot like Captain Phillips. How many of you have seen the movie Captain Phillips? Anybody ever seen that? So when you think of verse 8, think Captain Phillips, right? Who are the intruders in Colossians 2? Well, we're going to learn next week that there was one aspect of them that was all about legalism. Next week I'm going to preach an entire message on legalism. And I'm going to do it from God's perspective, from the Apostle Paul's perspective. I know none of us in here ever struggle with legalism. We never do. But if you know somebody who does, bring him next week. Invite him to come with you. Because we're going to see in verses 16 and following that legalism was one of the intruders. 
But in verse 8, he tells us specifically what the problems were. Some of these false teachers were all wrapped up with philosophy. Philosophy in and of itself isn't bad. Paul even used philosophy in the book of Acts. He stands on Mars Hill, preaches the gospel, and uses philosophy as a way to build his sermon. But he's not talking about philosophy in general, but any philosophy or wisdom that leaves God out of the equation. The historian Josephus and Philo both tell us that the Pharisees at this time, as they would have during the life of Christ, had philosophy. They even called it the philosophy. And the word the here is in the original. He's saying not just every philosophy, but guard yourself against that pharisaical, hypocritical aspect of this form of Judaism that was causing this, this wrong views of God. Stay away from the philosophy, man-made rules. And then he says, empty deceit. Guard yourself from empty deceit. That's teaching devoid of spiritual value. That's teaching that could lead you away from Jesus. If someone got up on the platform and they've tried to tell you that Jesus is a purple alien who was sent from another planet to steal all of West Virginia's coal. Now, if you heard that, your first reaction would probably not be, well, let me study it and let me see. At least I, I hope, if you've been in church for any length of time, that would not be what you say, right? Because it's so crazy and it's so far-fetched, we know that it's nowhere close to the truth. But the problem in Paul's day and the problem in our day is that error and heresy often sound so much like the truth. Think about the biggest cults in the world and the religions that rival Christianity. Somewhere in there, usually, there's something that's true. Because, see, the devil can't create anything. The devil is a created being. He is God, not God's equal rival. The devil has never created anything. He can only be like a parasite and corrupt something good that God has made. And so that's what the devil does with truth. He creates this false teaching, this heresy, these lies that when you first hear it, you go, well, hmm, maybe, maybe that's true. And the best or the worst, in my opinion, teachings are those that come eerily close to truth. Last year, we had someone come to our church that some of us loved and appreciated, but they were teaching things that weren't true and we didn't know about it for a while. And so after several months of this, a couple of our pastors, we met with this gentleman and said, hey, we're here, you're teaching this, but we've never found it anywhere in church history. We don't see it in the Bible. Where are you coming up with this? And in this community group and in different environments, uh, teaching these things. And he said this, he said, I know it's never been taught in church history, and I know it's never been you know, anywhere in the Bible, but God says, call, has called me to teach it to Bible Center Church. And Chad and I were meeting with him, just kind of scratching our heads like, wait a minute. You mean to tell me it's never been taught in church history and you think you're sent here by God to teach us something new? And just unashamedly, yes, that's right. And we shared with this guy, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. If what we believe isn't thousands of years old, why do we believe it? And of course, I'm talking about the doctrines of the faith. God invites us as a church to be strong in our orthodox, which means our, our fundamental doctrines. And this affects real people. I used the same illustration in the 9 a.m. service, and between services, somebody told me, they said, I know you didn't use names and you're trying to be very discreet, and I want to be professional, I really do. But they said, you have no idea. I stopped coming to my community group and almost stopped coming to church for four or five months because of that person had told me I was demon-possessed. In our church, and I asked this, if that, you hear that, don't wait four or five months. Come to me. Come to one of our pastors. This is real stuff. People who say that doctrine doesn't matter are crazy. They're crazy. This does matter. Our hope depends on truth. Our livelihood depends on truth. Our, our future depends on truth. And so we want to be a church that guards the relationship from intruders. He also says human tradition was intruding. 
We're going to talk about that more next week. But in Mark chapter 7 and verse 5, we hear Jesus say something similar. Paul often quoted Jesus. He says, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. One last way they were being tempted is in verse 8, and that was of the elemental spirits of the world. That's a fancy way to talk about the spirit realm. Angels, demons, black magic, astrology. People at this time in the world thought they could control the gods and the demigods. They could control the angels. You, if you wanted more crops, you prayed to the god or goddess of agriculture. If you wanted your business to thrive, you prayed to the god or goddess of commerce. And again, they would wear amulets and try to control. If you didn't like the, the farm next to you, you could pray to a demon, asking the demon to curse the farmer who might be doing better than you. Not so much different than the world today. Uh, but, but Paul writes and says, no, no, wait a minute. That not, has nothing to do with Christianity. The spiritual world is real. Satan and his demons are very much alive. But don't let it get to a place that the Bible never teaches. This is the way it looks in Appalachia, where we live. Uh, often people will say, you know, I locked my keys in my car. The devil must be against me. Well, it might be you're a moron. I don't know. You know or <laughs> I say that because I've locked my keys in my car more than you. Trust me. Ask my wife. The washing machine broke down. The car won't start. The devil's after me. Well, maybe... But you know where the devil most likely attacks you and me? is by causing us with his darts not to believe gospel truth. Causing us to believe that people are against us or, or, or that God is mad at us or that God hates us or, or that unity really isn't important. And, and Satan attacks us in all the ways that we often forget about. So he calls us to guard the relationship from intruders. Why is this so important? Why are we so passionate about it at Bible Center Church? Well, the first reason that it's so important is seen in verse 9, and that is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, so we won't spend a lot of time here. But when he says he's all the fullness of the Godhead, he was using a word with which they were familiar the, the people in Colossae and the false teachers were taught that the uh, fullness of God was in all of the angels in the spirit world. And Jesus was just part of that. You know, maybe he was a brother of an angel, but the fullness of God was in the innumerable number of angels. And the Apostle Paul's writing here and he says, no, there are innumerable numbers of angels, at least from our perspective, but the fullness of God is all in Jesus. Everything there is about God can be found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is 100% God. And then in verse 9, it says he is 100% body. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus ate. He slept. He got tired. He grew hungry. He was sad. He was joyful. He was angry. He had to go through puberty. Jesus wasn't a ghost. Jesus was a human man. John Stott writes, Anselm was right that the only man should make reparation for his sins, since it is he, man or mankind, who has defaulted. And he was equally right that only God can make the necessary reparation, since it is he who has demanded it. Jesus Christ is therefore the only Savior, since he is the only person in whom the should and the could are united, being himself both God and and man. Why is this so important? Because Jesus is God, but also because his grace is amazing. Look with me in verse 10. And you have been filled 
in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus' grace is amazing. If you underline in your Bible, you can encourage you to underline the words in him. It's all throughout Colossians. Over and over again, this phrase is used. In verse 16, it says, for by him. At the end of verse 16 of chapter 1, he says, for him. Chapter 1, verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Verse 22 of chapter 1, he is now reconciled in his body. Down in chapter 2, verse 3, in him or in whom. Chapter 2, verse 6, he shifts gears. He gives into high gear here in verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. Verse 7, be built up in him. Verse 9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. Verse 10, you have been filled in him. Verse 11, in him you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Verse 12, you've been buried with him. And we could go on and on. Throughout the New Testament, God says your identity is in him. Where do we often find our identities? If you're like me, we usually find it in what we do. Now, men, most of us find our identities in our work. We like what's the plaque that's on our desk. We like the, the name that's on our uniform, wherever your name. We like what we do. If somebody says, you know, who is so-and-so, you would say, I am this. I'm the VP of this. I'm the teacher of this. I'm the senior pastor of this. That's where we often find our identities because we can control it. But what happens when we lose that job or what happens when the stock market goes awry or what happens when the bottom falls out? If we put our identity in what we do or who the world sees us as, we will crash and burn. Because we'll think, wait a minute, I'm a nobody now. I'm a nobody because this didn't go right. But what if we put our identity in these two words, in him? Who are you as a woman? You can say, I am in Jesus. That's who I am. Probably what you are now and your job will not be who you are forever. Probably not. You're going to retire one day or you're going to not be able to do what you do. But if we're in Christ and if that's our identity, then we won't be swayed and moved by what comes in life. In the next four verses, he uses four metaphors and we're not going to read them, but he uses the metaphor of baptism, the picture of baptism, the picture of canceled debt, uh, the picture of military victory. Um, I was going to put all these pictures up on the screen because that's how Paul uses them. He uses them as pictures, illustrations. He's saying, hey, you want to know what my grace looks like? It looks like canceled debt. It looks like baptism. It looks like military victory. But then I realized verse 11 talks about circumcision. So I feel like it wasn't a good idea to do pictures on the screen. <laughs> you get the idea. He uses the, I know I'm going to get an email about that one. That's okay. He's, he uses these images and says, spiritually, your heart has been circumcised in Christ. You, you, spiritually, you've been baptized with Jesus, buried in baptism and raised to newness of life. Spiritually, you have, been, you have won the war. The, the debt has been canceled. And so if you were a Colossian reading this in the new te- first century church, you would get it. Oh, oh, my goodness. Grace is amazing. My favorite image out of all these, and you may have your own favorite image, but my favorite one is the idea of canceled debt. Think about all your sins being written on a piece of paper. Not just the really, really bad ones or the public ones, but all your sin. We all have them. Think about them all being written on a piece of paper. Better yet, a whiteboard the size of these screens. And, and for everybody to see all the sins you've ever committed and all the bad things you've ever thought or wanted to do, it's all there. And imagine Jesus coming along with a big cloth or by the touch of his hand, and he wipes the slate totally, completely, perfectly clean. That's the image of verse 14. I believe some of you have come in this morning bearing guilt and shame of some decision you've made in the past, 
and it is eating you, it is haunting you, and you think to yourself, there's no way God's ever going to let me off the hook for this one. The good news of the gospel is that through Jesus, he already has. The good news of the gospel is that when God the Father looks on you, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, he does not see you or your sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21. That is mind-blowing. That's why the apostle Paul says, it's the love of Christ that motivates me. The best way I can motivate you as your senior pastor is to preach the unfathomable riches of God's grace and say that you, if you're a believer, are just as righteous as Jesus. You are totally forgiven. The debt has been canceled, not just the sins of the past, but the sins you're going to commit this afternoon. And if that doesn't motivate you to go out and be a church Charleston can't live without, nothing will Because it's all of grace. That's why we're here. I understand. We talk about plastic, and and I don't like airing my dirty laundry any more than you do, right? You know, but what if over time, the next couple years, we grew so close to each other in relationship that we started to actually believe this? And we realized we're all broken and we're all on a journey. And it's all because of Jesus. It's because he's God. It's because of his grace. And then lastly, one last motivation. It's because he wins. This is my favorite. He wins. In verse 15, here's that military metaphor. He says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Again, this is a picture of a Roman military parade. The Roman historian Plutarch wrote around the same time of the Apostle Paul. We don't know if Paul would have known this, probably not have read this, but Paul would have been familiar with the concept. He wrote of the Roman general Aemilius Paulus, and he said that after he had defeated Macedonia, he brought the king and the warriors of Macedonia back to Rome to make a spectacle of them. And he marched them through the streets for three days, chained, tied up. But it was his way of saying, Macedonia now belongs to Rome. And he said that great scaffolds were built in the forum and along the boulevards of Rome for spectators seating. Everybody turned out dressed in festive white. On the first day, 259 chariots displayed in procession the statues, the pictures, the colossal sculptures taken from the enemy. The second day, an innumerable number of wagons bore the armor of the Macedonians. On the third day, the captives were paraded through the streets, begging for mercy. And finally came the victorious general, seated on the chariot, magnificently adorned, Dressed in a robe of purple, interwoven with gold, and holding a laurel branch in his right hand, all the army in like manner with boughs of laurel in their hands, dividing into their bands and companies, followed the general's chariot, singing songs of praise for him. This is what happened when Jesus died on the cross. This is what happened when Jesus rose from the grave. Satan and his army thought they were going to strip him and shame him. But up from the grave, he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. And he put them to open shame, verse 15 says. It was them who got conquered. You say, well, if that's true, why does Satan still have such a hold in the world? He does. He's still with us. He's still here. But I found out this week that during those three days of procession, There were instances where a prisoner may be tied up, may be carried, may have broken free, just enough to wreak some havoc on the crowd who had come to watch. That's Satan right now. That's Satan's army. They're very real. They're very much alive. But understand this. They do not have equal authority to God Almighty. They cannot touch us or touch our church that what first does not pass through the sovereign mind of Christ. 
He is in charge, and they do nothing without his permission. And so let that motivate you to go walk for the king, to walk for the general, to live for Christ, because he wins. And one day they'll be thrown in the lake of fire, never to swing their miscellaneous punch again. What's the main encouragement today? It's simply this. Walk with Jesus every day. He's already prepared the way. Walk with Jesus every day. He's already prepared the way. The image of walk is from the front to the Bible to the back. I was thinking this week of all the times I heard my Sunday school teacher growing up teach on Jericho. You know, like if you're in Sunday school and you don't know what to teach, you just pull out like Jericho or David and Goliath, right? And like the walls of Jericho can also be like Jonah and the whale, somehow or another. You draw eyes on the wall. These three or four stories you hear all the time. Think about Jericho. They had just crossed into the new world, the promised land. And their first big obstacle, Israel, was to conquer the city of Jericho. It was about nine acres or so on top of a mountain. And you can picture as they go to God, Lord, how shall we defeat the army? Bulwarks, uh, we feed it with battering rams, swords. And God says, no, I want you to walk around the city once a day for six days. At the end of six days, I want you to walk around the city seven times. It wouldn't have taken long. It was about the size of the piece of property we're selling, nine acres. And and he would have walked around. At the end of the seventh day, walk around seven times. The priests are going to blow trumpets. You're going to shout, I'm going to rip the walls apart. You're going to go in and take the city. Now, imagine if you're a warrior in Israel, you're thinking, no, 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 no. It's not that easy. It's not that easy. No, it's not. All right, I'll walk. I'll walk the first day. All right, all right, all right, Joshua. I'll walk the second day, third day. Day six, oh, day seven, we've got to walk seven times. What is this about? Okay, walk seven times. I'll do it, but I'm not sure if it's really going to work. And you walk seven times. The trumpets blow, and the mysterious hands of our sovereign Lord rip the walls apart. And you stand there and you go, it works. If I walk with him, it works. And I promise you, if you still walk with him, it works. Walk with Jesus every day. He's already prepared the way. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much. Love this church family and what you're doing in our hearts. I pray you'd help us to walk with you deeper. Out of love, may the fruit of the Spirit work through us as we learn to walk with you. I pray for a man or woman in our service today who doesn't know you as Savior, that you would draw them, you would help them to see the gospel with new eyes, help them to believe the gospel and be saved. With heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's you today, and you say, Pastor Matt, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian, let me invite you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's no set prayer in the Bible, but even as we sing this next song, if you'll call on the name of the Lord with your heart, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to walk with Christ who died for me. God promises to save your soul. And Christian, as we sing this last song, let me encourage you to sing from a place of victory. Jesus wins. May it affect your Sunday and may it affect your Monday. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen.